going down And you're invited for what they selling We ain't buying There is no running There is no hiding There's only fighting Or dying It's going down And you're invited for what they selling We ain't buying There is no running There is no hiding There's only fighting Or dying It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Hi, I'm a representative with Miami Against Fascism and um, happy to be on this podcast uh, to go into further depth on the recent New York Times article and uh, our research. Awesome. Well, just to get us started, tell us a little bit about Miami Against Fascism. You all have done some amazing investigative work. I know it's definitely been a thorn in the side of the far right in Florida, but just tell us about how it started and a little bit about the work you do. Sure. Well, our account started uh, last year in July and um, basically formed as a, a small network of uh, longtime activists on the left. And what motivated us was when uh, local Proud Boys began to threaten, harass, dox uh, local activists connected to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, they began showing up at their rallies, uh, trying to coax them into some kind of conflict. And, and when we realized that the Proud Boys were no longer going to be just a group that flew on, flew on weekends to Portland to attend protests there, but was actually going to be organizing locally, that's when we decided that we, we had to do something. Um, another aspect was that they began organizing through a front group that, which we can get into later, that began to hold meetups at, uh, local neighborhood bars and restaurants, uh, some of which we live in. So once it became clear that they were organizing in Miami and also trying to attack and intimidate the left, that's when we decided that we had to become serious about, uh, countering them. So one of the things that spurred this interview is that you all released a huge drop on the connections between far-right groups, including the Proud Boys and local GOP, and this was picked up by the New York Times, and they ran an article based on the work that you all did. So let's just start there. Lay out for us, you know, what is in the research? What did the New York Times talk about? Just to be clear, we were the main source or the original source that fed this information to the New York Times, uh, basically a, a culmination of, you know, our, our year of effort and research and following the, uh, the Proud Boys and local far right. Um, but also one thing that should be made clear is that what they laid out in the article is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so the local far right within Miami and South Florida has largely been operating with impunity, with very little scrutiny, uh, for many years. And, and so part of that is just organizing their people and also working within mainstream politics, uh, within the GOP locally. And 
What we eventually gained was a list of the Republican Executive Committee, which is uh, over 100 members, um, but acts as the steering committee for the local GOP, uh, setting their you know, policy, endorsing candidates, etc. Um, and we had long heard that there were a number of Proud Boys within the GOP, and we knew specific members. But once we obtained this list through uh, a source that we developed, um, we realized that there were seven Proud Boys holding seats on the the Republican Executive uh, Committee, and along with a number of allies as well. Uh, that's one thing that's not covered in the the New York Times piece, and uh, is you know on our on our plate to release very soon. Um, but what it showed was, um, you know, I think what many people rightly observe is a national trend of the Proud Boys making a concerted effort over the last several years to work within mainstream politics. Um, and at least locally here in Miami, that began a number of years ago. So several of the Proud Boys who actually currently hold seats um, ran for office in 2020. And so that included uh, former national chairman Enrique Tarrio, uh, Gabriel Garcia, um, who's one of the um, uh, one of the very early arrestees for January 6th, and um, another individual named Pedro Barrios. Um, uh, all three of them ran for different uh, state representative offices in 2020. The other thing that we found was that they had been gaining steam for some time and developing relationships, working inside the party. Um, and there was also a great deal of tension internally. And we heard lots of rumors of, uh, you know, essentially like screaming matches, like fistfights. We, there was even a rumor that circulated of one of the Proud Boys involved in an incident of a, an argument that erupted and they pulled a gun on another member at the Republican Executive Committee meeting. Um, and this was in December of last year. So very, very contentious. Um, and the other thing was that there were, you know, very few people knew about this. And many of these individuals were not known publicly as Proud Boys uh, until we uh, began to systematically out them. So you're saying that when they first got involved, they were not, hey, we're Proud Boys. You know, we want to get involved with the local GOP. They held that on the back burner, essentially. Yes, that's correct. So one example is Gabriel Garcia. He um, is uh, an army veteran. He was a captain and joined the Proud Boys very early on. Um, in 2020, he ran for office. Uh, we obtained like a campaign mailer that was sent on his behalf by a, a political action committee. And on the back of it, it listed a number of group affiliations, right? So, uh, you know, uh, veterans of foreign war, uh, even John Birch Society, the far right conspiracy group, but noticeably absent was his membership in the Proud Boys. Perfect example that he wasn't very out uh, about that. Uh, I'm sure people knew, but that wasn't known until after his arrest uh, following January 6th. Talk more just about that tension between those that supported them and those that were opposed to them that led, as you're saying, at least in some instances to even fistfights and stuff. I don't think that we could say that we know in detail the conflicts um, because the pieces of information that we get are just kind of just that little tidbits, pieces, et cetera. What we do know is that there there were people who opposed them and saw them as, you know, fascists attempting to take over the party. And those 
those were the, the folks who began to be our sources and began feeding us information about them. As far as how that played out, uh, again, I, I can't say that we know the specifics, but we did hear that many people inside the party were actively following our account and are reporting on the Proud Boys and that it began to exacerbate the tensions inside the, the local GOP. Um, at one point, we um, when we began to kind of drop little um, little bits saying that, hey, we have a list, we're going to be revealing people. The uh, local GOP kind of went into uh, a crisis mode. They canceled their meetings. They announced that they weren't um, sending out emails, uh, notifying people of the meetings, that they would only do it by phone call. Um, and then they began moving the meeting date. And essentially, when they did finally meet, they said, hey, there's you know spies uh, who have infiltrated us. You know, like uh, essentially they were taken over by a kind of a state of paranoia. Um, and it's, it's hard to say who was on what side. I mean, as far as the, the local leadership, the, um, there's a Senator Rene Garcia. He's the, the chairman of the local GOP. He's basically been playing duck and cover, uh, on, on, on the issue, just saying, Hey, free speech, people are entitled to their opinion. You know, uh, as he was quoted in the, the New York times, um, you know, we have our fringe elements, but like, I'm not going to do anything essentially. So, um, but, you know, this is kind of part of the course for Miami politics. If um, just going not so far back, maybe, you know, 10, 20 years, um, the local Cuban political establishment, um, you know, essentially uh, celebrated as freedom fighters, people who were known terrorists, uh, who, uh, you know, committed a bombing of a civilian airplane, uh, shot a, a rocket at a, a ship in the Miami port because it, uh, previously docked in, in Cuba. This idea of political extremism, um, having a home in Miami is, I wouldn't say a new thing. I would just say that there's kind of new players that have taken the reins. So, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you had the paramilitary group Alpha 66. They had a recruiting office right on Calle Ocho in Little Havana, where they operated out you know, in the open. And they also had a paramilitary camp out in the Everglades where they would uh, practice, um, you know, military training and then would, you know, take ships out to, to Cuba and they would uh, strafe the shore hotels, uh, tourist districts with uh, machine guns. And if you you can even go into um, the web archive uh, and um, pull up their old website and they openly brag about this and yet very, you know, no opposition, no arrests, um, you know, uh, and it's just surprising how uh, protected they were by the local political establishment. So seeing how the, you know, fast forwarding to today, seeing how the local political establishment relates to the Proud Boys and either looks the other way or, um, you know, once they're called out, does death and cover, it's kind of no surprise. Um, I'm sure that they're embarrassed, but they're only embarrassed because it's on national news. Talk about uh, Latinos for Trump and Enrique's role in that. Was that did that help as a vehicle to try to get them involved in the local GOP? Absolutely. So through Tario's leadership role in Latinos for Trump, they were leading some of the locally some of the the car caravans. 
um, Trumper uh, caravans were essentially they would have like a gathering point. Hundreds of trucks would uh, amass with, you know, Trump flags, American flags, uh, et cetera. And many times it was the Proud Boys, uh, you know, leading the effort. Um, and there were even incidents locally where uh, Biden supporters were doing similar activities. And there was a a uh, a bus of sorts, like a truck uh, full of people waving, you know, Biden flags and signs. And um, at some point in the day, both of these caravans cross paths and Proud Boys who were part of the Trump campaign, including Tario, uh, they ran that truck off the road and it received some damage. Uh, you know, there's some uh, vandalism and also it, I believe it kind of crashed into a ditch of sorts. You know, very little reaction locally. I'm not even sure if it was reported on no action by the police. Um, so definitely the prominence of Tario and the Proud Boys and their role in Latinos for Trump in organizing those activities locally, I'm sure helped them gain popularity and influence with the local GOP. But I, I think another key thing to, to emphasize is just that they had allies. There was There's people that we've identified who've been longtime GOP activists and had seats on the executive committee that are, um, you know, Maybe if not, if they didn't know the Proud Boys directly or work with them uh, from the beginning, at least began within um, in, in the lead up around the 2020 campaign, began to develop close relationships with them um, and you know became their supporters. Um, one one other role next to Latinos for Trump it would have to be the role of uh, Roger Stone as well. Tario and uh, many local Proud Boys uh, had very obviously close relationships with uh, with Stone. Um, you know, he lives not too far away in West Palm Beach. And, um, you know, there's been some testimony that supposedly that they were volunteer staff uh, for him, you know, and running his social media, answering his phone. And, you know, some people suspect uh, that, uh uh, Stone may have been bankrolling some of their efforts as well. Um, just one example, um, during the height of the pandemic, uh, this is April 2020, um, Proud Boys in Florida called for in multiple cities uh, for reopen Florida rallies. And locally, it was organized by Tario. It wasn't, you know, publicly, they... They organized it under the name of uh, Tario's T-shirt shop, uh, 1776 uh, something or other. Um, and, you know, it was basically the Proud Boys plus a lot of their allies locally um, didn't really attract much beyond that. But um, during the rally, although the theme of it was reopen uh, Florida, uh, reopen businesses, it didn't really catch on. Um, they unfurled a giant 20 feet wide you know, 15 feet tall, uh, pardon Roger Trump banner. Um, what that had to do with reopen, you know, nothing at all. But the fact that they would bring that up, um, it, it just shows the, the close connection that, that was there. Um, as well as with some of the, uh, as we're going to be revealing soon, as well as some of the, um, supporters of the Proud Boys who are on the GOP executive, some of them also have close relationships with Roger Stone. So definitely that's a factor as well. And why is Roger Stone important? What is he to the Proud Boys? Like, what does he give them? Well, some people have said that the Proud Boys are 
Roger Stone's personal army. Um, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. Uh, but definitely uh, he played like a mentorship role uh, above all, uh, basically finding people who he thought had uh, promise and talent and basically recruiting him, recruiting them to take on various roles and also encouraging them as well. Uh, like that reopen rally uh, concept, I would not be one bit surprised if that idea came, came right out of uh, Roger Stone's head. Um, you know, at, uh, as well, I wouldn't be surprised that um, um, there's more to be revealed as far as uh, um, uh, Stone's role in, in January 6th. And many of the, the key Proboy leaders like Tario, like Biggs, uh, were, you know, those people, people who played key roles in the insurrection were also people who were protégés and mentored by, by Stone. So, you know, there's just a lot of connections um as far as all the details you know i hope one day more will be revealed pause and let's talk a little bit about the politics of the proud boys um i think a lot of people don't really understand the ideology they have you know a lot of them just think of them as trump supporters but i mean they have like real serious political influences like they read from pat buchanan's death of the west pat buchanan you know famously had very direct ties to white nationalists like Sam Francis, uh, you know, kind of skirted that line between paleoconservatism and white nationalism, just like people today, like Nick Fuentes do. One difficulty there is similarly to many, much of the politics of the alt-right, is you see lots of humor, in-jokes, and um, pivoting from one point to another um, in often very opportunistic ways. And, and, and above all, I would describe Tario as as, as an opportunist. Uh, uh, you know, that, that that's his whole game, grift and opportunism. Um, and so it makes it a little harder to pinpoint them. And they're not exactly the types to, you know, do interviews, write articles, etc. So we're often left with you know, pieces, uh, you know, to kind of connect the dots around their social media, different things that we see them pushing. Um, and so, like you said, I think the, you know, the concept of Western chauvinism um, uh, looms large, and that is kind of a, um, you know, a watered down form of, um, you know, all the themes of, um of white nationalism. Uh, maybe it's not overt, but it has all the, the same pieces in, in play. Um, one uh, significant shift in difference that I would point to that we've seen with the, the Proud Boys locally is, um, and, and I think that this is part of a, a broader trend within the far right, is uh, is the emphasis on religion. Uh, if you went back a couple years ago, you'd probably not see Proud Boys talking about um uh, God or Christianity, etc. Um, I mean, most of these people are kind of, uh, you know, dirtbag types that, you know, uh, are, are not religious one bit. Um, but there has been a shift where we've seen them more embracing um, religious themes in, in their politics. And you see this with uh, Nick Fuentes, right? Um, and if you were to compare him to Richard Spencer, Richard Spencer said, hey, I'm, I'm an atheist. He's kind of a more uh, you know, traditional Nazi, I guess you could say, or fascist. And then you see uh, Fuentes, a key difference being that um, this merger of kind of 
patriotism, religion, um, into white, into the themes of white nationalism. And so we've seen that locally with the Proud Boys as well. Um, oh, one, one other aspect that, um, we've, we've seen transpired is after January 6th, um, you had a whole kind of political spectrum of people who were energized by, um, you know, January 6th, the, uh, you know, the stop the steal narrative of the stolen election around Trump. And you saw a kind of a coalescing of forces, right? And we really saw this around the school board uh, politics uh, last year during the summer, where you saw various strange, uh, strands of uh, religious right, QAnon types, the Proud Boys, um, you know, kind of radicalized Trumper MAGA types and kind of all fusing together in, in almost like a, a coalition of sorts. Um, and that's, that at least from our observation seemed to be something new where all these different folks were rubbing shoulders and, um, you know, op operating together. And, um, one place we saw that especially in action was a, uh, a front group that the Proud Boys organized locally called uh, Floridians First. And they branded themselves as kind of like a, a patriot MAGA flag waving group. And it kind of acted as a, um, uh, a, a place to bring together all these elements, uh, whether it was like QAnon types, um, you know, kind of hardcore Trumpers together with the Proud Boys together with religious right types and, um, you know, participating in, in, you know, meetings and, you know, flag waving demonstrations all, all together. The Proud Boys themselves still have a lot of rank and file uh, neo-Nazi and white nationalist members, which, of course, they really haven't done anything about. But at the same time, you know, definitely in Florida, it seems like they've been able to bring in a sizable amount of non-white members, especially under the banner of anti-communism. So talk a little bit about that. Sure, absolutely. So I would say that there's two sides to that question. One is Florida uh, at large, um, and then there's a specific Miami situation. So first, starting with Florida at large, um, one thing for people who are not from Florida is there's a saying that the more north you go, the more south you get. And so what that speaks to is once you leave the tri-county area of South Florida, which is, uh, you know, Miami-Dade, Broward, West Palm Beach, uh, those are like, you know, urbanized uh, metropolitan areas, you're essentially, you, you're moving into the deep south. And so the, the politics and the demographics very much, uh, you know, reflect that. Um, so in uh, northern Florida, there's... Um, a number of, um, you know, the, the, the overlap between like Confederate flag waving, you know, Nazis, white lead matter activists and the Proud Boys are like, you know, there's, there's, you know, scarcely, uh, 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 an inch of difference between them. Um, one place where that was very clear was when, um, far right groups called for a rally in Sanford, uh, Florida, which is, basically like an hour or so outside of Orlando and it's, there's a federal prison. There's some J six prisoners who, who were detained there. And it was almost like the, the composition was almost like a unite the right, uh, a mini unite the right 
uh, rally, uh, Florida, Florida version. Um, so there was a uh, white lives matter, uh, activists, um, some were wearing the, you know, the kind of, uh, the skull, uh, bandanas that are, are really typical among, uh, white, you know, fascists and, and white nationalists, um, proud boys, uh, various, uh, far right groups. But what was interesting is that while most of the larger demographic was white, white folks and, um, uh, you know, people who were very clearly identified as uh, Nazis um, and uh, white supremacist activists, uh, Tario was right there uh, in their midst, um, taking pictures with them, uh, posing in pictures and someone you would be wearing, uh, holding a, a Confederate flag. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very obvious that they're in league with the, the broader uh, white supremacist, uh, you, know, you know, far right groups. Um, uh, no matter what they uh, publicly put forward. Um, as to the Miami situation, that is uh, uh, very different. Um, when the Proud Boys started in Miami, you know just going off of the the very early pictures. What's interesting is there's a good number of what seem to be um, uh, white guys involved in the group, um, which very much stands out in Miami. Uh, there's, you know, very few, um, um, you know, uh, very few, uh, well, a very small white population in Miami uh, outside of Jewish folks, right? Um, which, uh, I don't think would, uh, be a strongly represented demographic in the, the Proud Boys. Um, but what's very clear is that while that's where the group had its start, um, it's shifted very much to be, uh, almost entirely, uh, Latino and very much, as you said, united around anti-communism as being a, uh, driving theme. Um, one thing that I think should be noted as very different in Miami is that, um, you know, the, the racial structure of Miami is, has more in common with Latin America than the rest of the U S. Uh, so one major difference that, uh, I think people should be made aware of is that the, um, once there began to be, uh, various waves of Im immigration in, in flux into Miami, um, white flight, uh, just rapidly, uh, uh, took place. Um, and it created, uh, political openings, economic openings, as well as, um, you know, the, as far as the Cuban migration, you know, it wasn't just like working class people, uh, you know, fleeing, uh, you know, uh, economic conditions, but you know, you had, uh, landowners, the bourgeoisie from Cuba, they were the first to arrive, then more middle class people, then waves of more, uh, working class people. Um, and so one unique thing in Miami is that from the, the economy, uh, from the top to the bottom is, is, is run by Latinos. So the, the landowners are, 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 um, could be Cuban or, or, you know, wealthy South American, um, uh, from wealthy South American families. Um, the city council and the political structures are dominated by Cubans. Um, the police as well. Um, and your landlord could be, is likely Latino and as well as, uh, the, the people working in working class, like service industry, manufacturing, et cetera. So it, it creates a very different dynamic where people can, 
grow up in a sort of bubble where the larger um, you know, structures of racism that people experience uh, on the daily as people of color, uh, you may, I don't want to say that people won't see it, but it's possible to be in a bubble where you're, it's, it's not very visible. Um, and that doesn't mean that there's other forms of, uh, kind of, um, um, you know, hierarchy based on, you know, class and, and also color, right. Uh, that plays out as well. Um, but I think it allows people to, um, be insulated from the, the larger dynamics around race in, in the U S and, um, and even though definitely Miami has a, a significant black population, the kind of segregation of, of Miami and its neighborhoods is like the black neighborhoods are, are pretty much, um, you know, going back to the history of like redlining and uh, segregation are pretty much like restricted to like very specific areas. Um, and so you can live in a, you know, suburb of Miami and be completely surrounded by Latinos and very rarely interact with African, African Americans or even white people. Um, so it definitely creates a different dynamic. Um, next I would say is that, um, I think politically the Cuban right wing has been driven by anti-communism and very much that's, um, you know, it's, it's a form of exile politics. Um, but very much the generation that drove that is basically all in retirement age at this point. Um, but the people who are politically active, they're the sons and daughters of, of those, um, you know, of, of those politics, um, and the people who carried them forward. Um, and I think it has a, um, an interesting shift is that anti-communism is, it's not like a very coherent ideology. And I think when, uh, people who grew up in Miami are looking to say, you know, where do I fit in politically in the U S um, identifying with the far right, the, the normal barrier that people of color would see to that is that these people are racist. They, um, uh, you know, they're anti-immigrant, et cetera. Um, those types of barriers, they're just not seeing them. Um, you know, many, um, um, you know, for, for people who may not be familiar, uh, uh, many Cuban, you know, refugees and, and migrants who came to Miami had, you know, very significant privileges that uh, other immigrant groups are, are, are not afforded, uh, which means as, as soon as you set foot on U.S. soil, you're afforded residency status, you're afforded, uh, you know, welfare benefits and, you know, uh, housing, education, etc. Um, and, you know, or, or, and then there was a small business loans, housing loans made available in the past. Uh, many of these have been curbed at, at this point. Um, but it allowed like a very sizable Cuban middle class to, um, to uh, take root in Miami. And so this idea of seeing uh, people seeing themselves as, uh, you know, prosperous middle class identifying with, you know, uh, kind of middle class America is, you know, all that is, is very strong. One other question on the Proud Boys in Miami before we kind of switch gears here. Did they, did they grow and sort of, uh, metastasize more within the local GOP, uh, kind of like after the lockdown protests and COVID or was, did that kind of shift really happen before that? Um, that's hard to say. Definitely they 
had connections and they were active in the GOP before COVID. So say take Gabriel Garcia, um, as, as I mentioned him earlier, he, um, he was one of the early January 6th arrestees. He, uh, live streamed himself on Facebook inside the Capitol. Uh, so, uh, didn't do himself, uh, any favors there. Um, um, he ran in 2020, uh, before COVID started. Um, so definitely they were there and they had a presence, but I feel like the, um, the political momentum of stop the steal and the kind of, um, you know, anger outrage of, uh, Trump losing the election, um, together with this kind of coalescing of various like right wing forces, uh, I think that that all helped propel them forward and gain kind of newfound allies. Um, even kind of some people who you think would be unlikely supporters of, of the Proud Boys. What do you think is going to happen with these hearings? Do you think this is really going to take the wind out of the sails of the group or will they just continue forward? Um, hard to say. I think it's going to put them on uh, – it's going to put a huge spotlight on them and their role in the insurrection. And definitely, I hope that they they cover this. But, you know, Miami Proud Boys were on the very front lines of the Proud Boys who broke through the police barricades and and, and were inside. Um, and that's reflected in, in the numbers um, as far as the most number of arrestees come from Florida. But then if you're to look within Florida, the most um, where where the most number of um, arrestees and participants concentrated, it would probably be South Florida, Miami. Um, so it's hard to say. I think the combination of the New York Times piece coming out and the embarrassment that 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 is brought to the local GOP establishment together with the hearings, it's definitely going to be a major blow. It's definitely going to, I think, make some, you know, some people sitting within the GOP kind of look to their left, look to the right and say, are these the type of people like, is this going to help our party um, being, you know, being associated with these individuals? Will that actually translate into any action? Hard to say. Um, I, you know, uh, people thought the Mueller report was going to be the end of Trump. Clearly it was uh, anything but. Um, will this be the end of the Proud Boys? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put money on it personally. Uh, it's going to have an impact, but I think we'll, we're going to have to see how it plays out. You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. Um, well, I just wanted to switch now and talk about what's happening with DeSantis, who is the governor of Florida and has been touted as sort of, you know, kind of the new Trump or even Trumpier than Trump. And I know you all have done a lot of work on exposing sort of the intersections and crossover with the far right, people like within the QAnon world. Uh, people associated with the Proud Boys. Um, but let's kind of start there. Uh, let's talk about how there are connections between these formations and either DeSantis himself or sort of groups and projects involved with uh, 
things that DeSantis is trying to carry out. Sure, absolutely. And I think your characterization of DeSantis as Trump 2.0 or a more uh, kind of focused and dangerous version of Trump is is completely accurate. Um, and the way that he carries himself politically as far as, um, you know, pushing his politics and just kind of not giving an F what, you know, what the blowback is, um, it's it's worse than Trump. And especially the uh, kind of attack on LGBTQ um, you know, students through the, uh, the Don't Say Gay bill. Um, he recently um, uh, passed some kind of bill or perhaps it's through an executive order that gender affirming care is basically outlawed by um, uh, under, under Medicare in Florida, um, banning books, et cetera. It's just a kind of like a, an, an onslaught, and it's much more strategic and targeted than Trump, that's for sure. Um, as to the intersections with the far right, um, you know, I, I can't speak to all of Florida, but one thing that we've seen locally is the, the uh, around the school board and Moms for Liberty. So locally, um, the Moms for Liberty chapter is run by a, um, a woman who we exposed as a, a hardcore QAnon supporter who became radicalized during the uh, pandemic. Um, her name is Eulalia Jimenez, and they've, um, in their efforts at the school board, they've allied closely with the Proud Boys, uh, whether that means, um, you know, rubbing shoulders with them outside or inside the school board. Um, but even so far as we know that, she, and she's publicly confirmed after we began to uh, report on it, that she was dating one of the local Proud Boys as well, Chris Barsenis. He's one of the J6 um, uh, participants. Um, and what we know is that Moms for Liberty closely collaborates with Governor DeSantis's office. And... Um, and at the same time that they're very clearly allied with the Proud Boys, make no secret of it. Um, many of their supporters are also QAnon types as well. They, you know, have posted QAnon type content as well as, um, you know, I don't think this would be any, su any surprise to the listeners of, um, of your show, but I mean, they also post stuff that's just like hardcore anti-trans, anti-gay uh, content that just insinuates just the existence or mention that gay people exist in a school setting is somehow uh, indoctrination of the gay agenda. Um, and it's just, I mean, rewind a couple of years ago. It's just insane to think that um, that this would be happening and this would be the type of group that uh, not just a local politician, but a governor would be allied with and working with. Um, but I, I think that they see um, groups like Moms for Liberty as a key ally in the build up to the midterms as far as um, mobilizing, especially women, uh, to become active within GOP politics um, to the degree that they've um, been able to build up a, a sort of base. Um, I think that they've had some success. I mean, we've also undermined that and, you know, many of their supporters have dropped away after we put their name and their face uh, uh, on our, on our Twitter page. Um, 
But at the same time, the narrative that they have of protecting children and it's about saving them from, you know, the evils, you know, all these kind of made up, uh, you know, far right fairy tales that they tell themselves. Um, it's a compelling narrative and story that's able to uh, attract a base. And I think that the GOP and DeSantis in particular sees that as like a key base to, uh, you know, building his support in the midterms and potentially into the presidency. How important are these auxiliary far-right groups to these wider projects that are the Republicans are carrying out? You know, are they an integral role to it? Do they sort of kind of like push the Overton window and then it's, able, you know, the rest of the population is able to accept it? Are they there to basically scare folks away from counter-protesting these things or is it a mixture of all those? Like the alliance is not incredibly specific. Um but I'll, I'll give some examples, right? So, for instance, when DeSantis introduced his Anti-Woke Act, which was uh, to kind of uh, ban CRT uh, within public education, even though a previous executive order had already done that, um, the one of the key speakers he invited onto the stage was the Miami Moms for Liberty uh, leader, Yulale Jimenez. And... Um, other local Miami types um, connected to the far right have also participated in his uh, press conferences. Uh, some of these people were J6ers, some of them, um, you know, connected to the Proud Boys, etc. Um, I, I wouldn't say that they're in completely. Again, it's not out in the open. It's just that he's using them as like kind of key components of his base. And I think that there's an expectation that they're going to play a key role in the in the ground game, just like in the sense of earlier we were speaking about Tario and Latinos for Trump and the the Proud Boys leading those car caravans that were kind of rallying people behind Trump um, in the lead up to the uh, uh, Trump Biden election in 2020. Um, you know, they're playing like a key role as far as like. The, the on the ground movers and shakers. And, and I think very much they're playing. This is what's what's continuing. Um, whether they always acknowledge that openly, I don't think so. I think that they try to downplay that. Uh, but it is very much there. Um, but that's where, you know, groups like like ourselves, other anti-fascists can play a role in making those links uh, very clear and naming them very publicly. And because oftentimes we see local press um, even just other people on the left just have no clue, like how all these forces relate to, to each other. Um, and local press will interview moms for Liberty and call them parent advocates, um, until we basically drag them through the mud and say, Hey, you just quoted somebody as a parent advocate, advocate, quote unquote, uh, who's like a, a wacko QAnon nut, like dating the proud boys. Um, um, I, I think that the ability of anti-fascists to kind of interrupt that and call that out, uh, you know, throws a wrench in, into that dynamic. It seems like there's so many other things that, that just everyday folks are talking about and dealing with. And as you were saying before recording, like this set is like very loud and extremely in your face on the ground. Like how is this stuff received? I mean, obviously the way that, all that resonates is going to play out very differently um, 
you know, in different parts of the country. But as far as locally within Miami and South Florida, um, or I'll just say specifically Miami, um, you know, not all the culture wars, uh, war issues that they pick up resonate widely. Some do. Um, but as far as the, you know, kind of the more bread and butter, butter issues, the, um, kind of the, the right and the far right have found ways to agitate around that, but in kind of like a very strategically narrow way. So gas prices, that's, the main, like, they're not talking about rent. Uh, they're not talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, in, inflation's going up, wages are stagnating. Um, they're just talking about gas prices and it's all Biden's fault. And just this cynical, um, agitation of, even though the, the Republicans wouldn't have any sort of, um, um, you know, alternative to this, um, but they're happy to kind of frame it as it's the Democrats fault and that's why they're evil and that's why they're ruining everything and vote for us. And to some degree, I think that that, um, is effective, but also it's, um, you know, the lack of social movements, um, in Miami, you know, significant ones, I think it creates like a huge vacuum and the local, you know, Democratic Party establishment, they're basically, you know, there's like a saying that they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Um, and so they're just a complete mess, very flat footed. Um, and it, you know, sort of allows the, the GOP and the right to, um, you know, kind of set the terrain as far as the discussion around the issues. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that.
So if you're somebody that's listening to this and maybe you live in a small town or somewhere that's not as big as Miami, uh, but you're thinking to yourself, you know, I know of somebody that's involved in the Republican Party that's starting to run for office or they're wiggling their way into the inner workings of things. What advice would you give them to expose and to point the finger and disrupt that, you know, fascist creep, that growing alliance between GOP officials and fascist groups? Sure. Um, that's a great question. Um, the ability of anti-fascists to, um, you know, expose, disrupt uh, these forces um, can play a significant role, as I, I think evidence of in, in many of the things that we've done in Miami. Um, but as far as the practical steps to go about doing that, I think it's just a lot of it is very patient research of, you know, reading past media coverage um, and getting to know the players, uh, know where they're um, hanging out. And so right now at the moment, a lot of the uh, the two places that the right operates is uh, Instagram for more kind of open uh, public groups. So that's, um, you know, Moms for Liberty, for instance, or like local anti-vaxxers. Um, they're on there and because it's a huge platform that's really accessible. But the kind of behind the scenes places where they're having their more internal discussions are, are obviously uh, platforms like Telegram. Um, so the ability to be inside their communications and to connect the dots between uh, the different players and who's saying what. Um, I mean, I think that that's, that's been key to, um, you know, not just finding people's uh, IDs, but to demonstrate the picture of the far right and their connection to mainstream politics. Um, also, I would say that there's, one one really great aspect of Instagram, uh, which is that for more for more people who are not uh, hardened like uh, right wing activists, you know, people will have their profile uh, completely public out in the open, um, and it just gives you so much information. Um, and the other aspect of Instagram being a, a very visual platform of sharing pictures it very much lends itself to uh, painting a picture of, you know, who's hanging out with whom, like who, um, who's sharing what. Um, and, um, and, and it just allows us to create a, a portrait of not just the people, but also their politics, what they're sharing, what they're talking about. And just to make absolutely clear that while groups like say like moms for Liberty, they don't, put themselves out there publicly as, um, you know, they don't seem like a, a street fighting group that's like sharing Pinochet memes like the, the Proud Boys. Um, but if you follow them closely, it they reveal themselves. Um, and just, you know, as we said, a good deal, uh, I mean, I would say the majority of what we do is just basically taking what they post, taking a picture of it, and putting it next to the names and the people behind it. And, you know, a one sentence description that fits in a tweet. Um, and that alone is so uh, powerful and it drives them oftentimes mad that we're amplifying 
the messaging, like the the essentially hate speech and, and kind of far right uh, messages that they're uh, constantly promoting, and just like naming them as behind it, and here's what they're what they're saying, here's what they're doing, um, and that in itself has had a a, a huge impact, I would say. Um, one other thing I would also add is just the ability also to. Um, you know, when they do have, um, you know, a, a physical presence in a rally, a march, an event, et cetera, the ability to have eyes on that, um, either, you know, through means of surveillance or through monitoring their own communications. Oftentimes the, the right is just, you know, they're, they're, they're famous for being, uh, super performative, um, and just, you know, live streaming and, and just constantly broadcasting every little thing that they're doing. Um, in some ways, that's their own downfall is that um, their um, incessant need to promote themselves um, just makes it so easy to capture what they're doing. Um, so just being able to stick around and watch very pa uh, patiently and to connect the dots is a huge part of it. So how can people follow your work and keep up with what's going on? Absolutely. Uh, people can find us on Twitter, uh, Miami Against Fascism, and that's at MIA Against uh, Fash, F-A-S-H, um, on Twitter. And hopefully we'll be sh uh, selling some uh, shirts, merchandise um, that we hope to be putting out soon. But yeah, follow our work and we're constantly on a daily basis putting out uh, content on uh, local fascists, as well as promoting uh, the work of uh, uh, other anti-fascist uh, uh, groups. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.